Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Our guest today is computer science researcher Juan Banda, whose expertise includes big data mining. In March 2020, Banda and his collaborators began to collect and analyze Twitter data related to COVID-19. Today, we're going to talk about what he's learned as we mark the one-year anniversary of living with the virus in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Banda. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we dive into your research, let me ask, what made you realize that COVID-19 would become a global threat? So this was uh, back in February of 2020, discussing with one of my collaborators, Dr. Chowell from the School of Public Health at GSU. He was mentioning, I mean, he studies, he's an epidemiologist, so he's he was mentioning this coronavirus was going to be a big thing. So he told Basically, he told us to start collecting data, which we did, and we've been doing that pretty much on a daily basis since then. Yeah, and I know Dr. Chow had done a lot of prior research on the 1918-1919 pandemic, so he, I guess he was seeing the direction that things were going and the potential that 100 years later we were going to see something big. Yes, that is correct. And also, you know, the 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 the, the response, <laughs> that or lack of response from the country was leading to leading everybody to believe that you know this was going to get out of control, which it did. Yeah, yeah. And and what made you decide that Twitter would be a worthwhile source of data to understand the pandemic? Well, you know, everybody else is using the CDC data ba- back in those days was unreliable. Everybody's data was a mess. So there were, and also, you know, we wanted to get a different angle on it. So Twitter has the advantage that, you know, the data is uh, at least 1% of the data is freely available for anybody, any researcher to collect. And there's no, you know, there's no crazy strings attached to doing that. So, um, so comparison to Facebook or any other social network. So with that, okay, let's see what, you know, people say in Twitter. And obviously, Twitter, you know, has a pretty wide reach in the U.S. and in other countries in the world. And over the past year, how many tweets would you say you've identified as uh, pandemic related? So from uh, the the one percent sample that Twitter lets us get for free. We are almost hitting one billion tweets in the next couple of weeks. So over the past year, one billion. Yes, but wow. you have to think about it, right? I mean, that's from the one percent sample. So there's ninety nine percent more. <laughs> wow. Well, so for people who aren't active on Twitter, I want to note that these are short messages that have a maximum character count of two hundred and eighty words. Uh, savvy users can string together a series of tweets to get out a longer message. Um, now that we're all on the same page, can you explain how you're analyzing the messages or the content of the tweets? Yes. So the first uh, way to start is usually by hashtags or terms of interest or, you know, whatever phrase, coronavirus, vaccine, you know, those kinds of the uh, little terms that people use. So you set a filter on the Twitter, uh, they call it like the fire hose, where all the Twitter, all the tweets are coming by, uh, coming in in real time. And then you're just collecting the ones that match those requirements. So that's, you know, how you start collecting and how you start 
actually making it useful, that's uh, where you apply, you know, machine learning and natural language processing techniques such as, you know, simple things like filtering, you know, uh, back, uh, emojis or other hashtags, URLs, pictures, and you get the text where then you start breaking it down into, you know, words or tokens. Well, wow, so you can you can even look at emojis and images and glean information from that? Yes, yeah. So in the in the, in the data that we release in our uh, data set, uh, we release all the, the most frequent and most popular emojis since there's a lot of researchers that like to use those for their work. And what are you learning so far from analyzing this data? Oh, it's been it's been a, a completely exciting uh, you know uh, area to explore because you can learn anything from social aspects to clinical medical aspects to even you know you can see the trends and how people talk about things and what things people talk about related to the pandemic and how those are you know either matching with rising cases or lowering cases. So it's it's been you can learn pretty much. Uh, I wouldn't say everything, but a lot of very interesting things, uh, you know, in different domains. What are you, so how are you seeing changes since the pandemic began in the U.S. Uh, up until now, almost, or, or actually right at a year later, are you seeing different topics that people are talking about or different volume of discussion yeah, so the volume of discussion, you know, uh, uh, as expected, people have uh, gotten tired of it. So there's less volume of discussion. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the pandemic, we used to get around four to five million tweets per day on the on this free, you know, uh, stream. And now we're down to maybe 1.5, 2 million. So that's a huge drop in actually people talking about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, based on the volume, you can also see that people started talking more about vaccines since the first vaccine was, you know, approved. People have stopped talking about wearing masks. So you could actually, you know, correlate uh, when when the kind of like, the, you know, the, the community interest drops in things or it's it, or it picks up. Interesting. And um, does the volume of tweets about COVID or about uh, symptoms of illness in general offer any insight into where outbreaks might be getting better or worse? Uh, yes, but that you know to get to that point, you you need to do a lot of uh, data processing and cleaning because a lot of people do have their location enabled on their phone or whatever they're tweeting from, but most people don't actually. Over ninety-five percent of people don't, so you have to get creative on how to you know uh, narrow down the tweet to a certain location or you know where the user's from. Uh, so you can do granular analysis like that, but it's it, it requires a lot of massaging of the data. So I understand that you've made the data available to other researchers around the globe. How many people are using this massive data set? Yes, so we released the data almost exactly one year ago. Uh, this data set has been downloaded over 80,000 times on the repository where we put it in Sonoto, which is a public uh, repository. We had around six or seven classes from different universities that are using the data for their class projects. We had almost 50 people that have cited our data set that they actually produce scientific papers based out of you know the data that we're sharing. We also participated in, uh, in 
around six or seven hackathons, uh, uh, COVID-19 hackathons, where we were data partners with MIT and uh, other institutions to try to generate insights out of this data set. And we keep having uh, collaborators. We had people from everywhere from Sweden to Russia to a lot of other institutions in the US reach out saying, hey, you have the data, we have these questions, can we partner up and try to answer these questions? And this lead to a lot of new collaborators. And we're pretty much up almost tenfold in the number of people that we work with, which has been super exciting. So many questions, so many different topics of that we could have never come up with is what these collaborators bring to the table, right? Instead of just sitting on the data like a lot of people do, we rather open it up to see what other people wanted to look at. Right. Wow. And and what are other researchers uh, looking for in the data? So we had uh, people look at, you know, uh, from the misinformation aspect, you know, all this QAnon conspiracy theories that uh, bleed into the pandemic topics. We had people look into, and we worked with others to look into what clinicians were actually saying, or people in the healthcare industry, you know, nurses or caretakers. Uh, what what were they saying? You know, what what was the what what were their reports about? You know, symptoms or, you know, how the disease was progressing. So that's you know what researchers were looking at, and we had other people just use the traditional stuff of you know measuring sentiment based on you know interventions of mask wearing, lockdowns. So it's a very wide variety of topics, and a lot of topics we had no expertise about. A lot of topics we develop expertise alongside our collaborators to get those get to that data. So what are some of the questions, if we can get a little more specific, some of the questions you feel like um, this work has helped to answer? Well, uh, one of the most specific things, and this is some of the work that we've done with uh, collaborators at Oxford, Stanford, and other you know, large universities around the world, it's characterizing you know, the, the long COVID or the long haulers experience, mm -hmm. right? So all these people that have, that continue to show symptoms even after you know coming out of the the dangerous or infection, uh, the the disease, let's call it, you know, mm -hmm. all, all these people still, a, a lot of people still report, you know, a, a wide variety of symptoms uh, over time. And even in, in our in our most recent work that we're uh, about to submit, uh, we find that over even 200 days after uh, COVID infection, they're still reporting, you know, fatigue, and you know headaches chest pains coughing all these other symptoms that have been shown in clinical cohorts or people in hospitals that are also noticing that we've been able to pull all that out of twitter and the uniqueness of this is that we have i mean a lot of these people report or they give their narrative pretty much on a daily basis multiple times a day mm -hmm. and no clinical data set, no clinician, I mean, no data set in at least in a healthcare facility is going to be that rich because, you know, they're not monitoring people multiple times a day versus right. people just self-reporting multiple times a day. So after a lot of massaging on the data and a lot of curation, a lot of annotation by uh, clinicians, we were able to get to uh, a, a large enough cohort of people that, you know, uh, to characterize this long COVID uh, sequelae. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Um, any other um, findings that that you um, feel like you've been able to draw out of this Twitter data that 
you might otherwise not have been able to um, uncover for for people? Well, uh, one thing that we did notice and is something we're exploring later is that a lot of the communities of people with chronic diseases are actually very active in these platforms. And a lot of the information they post, a lot of the tweets they post, you know, to support each other or just to, you know, get the word out. It's very rich in, in, in all these clinical details that, I mean, you can't find anywhere else. So we're, we developed methods through this pandemic to extract this data, to actually be able to curate it nicely, that we can actually pair up with clinicians and, and you know, characterize diseases in a more granular way than, you know, just having people going to the hospital or to their, you know, uh, physicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, now that we're at the point where, uh, you know, the vaccine, va different vaccines are out there and a lot of people are eager to figure out how to get vaccinated, are you seeing more people sharing intel about where to go or how to sign up and, and that kind of question? Or is it more about vaccine safety and, and questions like that? So we're looking at this in two different angles, right? So we're looking at it in the sense of, you know, how many people are actually interested in taking a vaccine, which, you know, believe uh, unbelievably, there's still a lot of people doubting this. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at it as, you know, how many people are actually talking about it positively? How many people are talking about it negatively? How many people would actually, you know, flat out say they won't take it? How much of that is, you know, driven by misinformation, bots, or, or any, any other, you know, misinformation campaigns? And on the other side, we're looking at people have reported that they taken a vaccine if they're actually, you know, reporting any side effects or adverse adverse effects that are known, and then also which ones are not known. So we're looking at both sides, you know, now because there is a lot of the chatter about vaccines went up, you know, 10, 15 fold just in this year when vaccines became more widely available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So what other uh, findings or insights have you drawn from this work? So in, in our initial steps, you know, when we were trying to make sense of this data, we also discovered that doing the process nicely, I mean, and we, I, I used to work with clinical data, with scientific literature, which was very nicely curated data, but Twitter is a completely different story. <laughs> so if you don't clean it nicely, if you don't do ste methodical steps, uh, you know, to actually uh, extract as much as you can, you will lose around 15% of the important data. And we've shown that in a research paper we published at the European Conference of NLP uh, uh, COVID workshop, where, you know, uh, losing 15% might sound like little, but when you have only several million tweets of a particular topic that you're looking at, it's it's a lot of data that could you know improve your machine learning models or any findings that you're trying to make. Additionally, we also looked at you know what are clinicians or how are clinicians perceiving the pandemic, and, and we did this work with some people from the University of Colorado Denver, where you know the, we're looking at the specific uh, accounts where clinicians are anonymously talking about the pandemic and how their institutions are handling it. Alongside, in the, along the same lines, we did a study with uh, people from MIT where we're trying to find a method of how to filter these tweets to actually look at only tweets from, you know, health experts and clinicians as well, 
you know, or epidemiologists and actually, you know, see what they're talking about, you know, what are the trending topics they're mentioning. And the challenge in that was that, you know, I mean, Twitter has a lot of noise, uh, a lot more noise than any other data set that I play, that I work with. So uh, developing methods and developing applications, uh, well, developing methods to find uh, high, highly relevant or at least, you know, reliable tweets, it's, it's something that it's, it's not a solved problem. And we did it, uh, we presented some work on the context of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just analyzing tweets seems like such an enormous challenge when so many people are so informal in how they communicate on Twitter. There's tons of abbreviations. A lot of people misspell things. How do you address that? Yes, no, that, that's 100% the, the issue, right? There's also a lot of tweets where there's only emojis <laughs> because yeah. a lot of people talk in emojis now. So, so I mean, you know, for doing this on more formal data, like scientific papers or clinical notes, you know, you use these big dictionaries of, you know, clinical terms, medical terms, or biomedical terms. For Twitter, you know, you can use that, but you'll still be losing a lot of it. So we develop, you know, uh, at least a methodology on how to, generate misspellings, how to look for those things. Also, we use other people's work that, you know, they, they assign meaning or at least sentiment or to certain emojis so we can actually leverage that. And uh, it's also looking at a lot of data and, and adding manual things to, you know, manual rules on how people are talking about some things in certain contexts. And uh, was your work focused exclusively on uh, people tweeting in English or in other languages as well? We did most of our work in, in English. However, there's some work that we've done in Spanish that we're still trying to get it uh, uh, published or, well, in, in a shape for publication because, I mean, mm-hmm. Spanish is one of my native languages. So mm-hmm. we're focusing on Spanish. And, and again, you know, a lot of the uh, machine learning and NLP stuff for, you know, tweets is in English. So we're finding new challenges of, you know, trying to do the same in Spanish because, you know, language is different, language structure is different. And even within, you know, different variants of Spanish, the, the words used for certain things are different. So it's a, yeah. it's a different challenge, but it's been a, an interesting one. Have you used Twitter or other social media to research other topics other yes. than the pandemic? Yeah, so over the last couple of years, we uh, we used Twitter to do to find uh, drug adverse events and drug mentions on tweets uh, where, you know, people a, lo- a lot of this stuff gets lost in the follow up or when people either stop going to the doctor or when they go, they forget to mention something. However, during their Twitter uh, full rants or Twitter uh, <laughs> hours a day, you know, people actually do talk about, oh, I took this drug and I got the certain side effects. So we've been using that for side effects. We also been using this alongside uh, Dr. Chowell to track uh, movement and see what people are doing during natural disasters like hurricanes. We actually have a research initiation grant through GSU about developing a framework to do this, uh, to have some sort of software plan for whenever there's a new natural disaster striking, we can actually measure these things in real time. Hmm. Interesting. Well, now I'm going to take this in a different uh, direction, ask you a few personal questions. What led you to study computer science? 
So <laughs> when I was growing up, I was very impatient. Or I basically had that was diagnosed with ADD, so I couldn't sit straight for more than a couple of minutes. Uh-huh. And when I discovered computer programming, it's the only thing that I, that kept me, you know, sitting down and focused in one single task. So I started programming when I was around probably seven years old and continued all throughout. So I always, you know, it, it just clicked. It's one of those things that, you know, for me, it clicked. It was very logical how to tell the computer to do things. And it, 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 I just stuck with it. I mean, I liked it. I, I, I was lucky enough that I was very good at it. I was lucky enough that my parents supported it by getting me a computer. Uh, so that, that got me into computer science. And since the beginning, I knew I want to keep learning more and more and more. And I love it. I learn new things every day. It, it's an ever-changing landscape that, you know, it, it just keeps making you learn new things. So <laughs> that's what got me into it. So you found your passion at a very young age. Yes, I was very lucky and I was very lucky to get supported for on it. And I'm very lucky that it's one of the areas that it's, you know, very exciting to work in. And it's a lot of job opportunities as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, what's the biggest misperception that people might have about your research? Yeah, a lot of people contact me saying, oh, give me the data about this, this and that. <laughs> so they think that, you know, all this Twitter data is very nicely set up, very nicely curated, very clean. And that, you know, you could just uh, think about something and the data is just going to be there, the pristine in a, in a, let's say, an Excel file with all the data they just want. And so that's a huge misconception because we spent... of the time, 95% of our time is, you know, data plumbing, data cleaning uh, and curating it, you know, standardizing it, normalizing it so we can actually generate insights out of it. Uh, So that's one of the biggest misperceptions that people think, oh, the data is already there. It's all nice and good. Give me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So do you have a favorite book or movie that touches on your work? Yeah, that's a very good question (laughs) so i mean not particularly in my work i i guess that you know the movie that also kind of kept me going on this was war games that Uh, very old movie (laughs) about hackers right uh and also you know thermonuclear war game (laughs) yep (laughs) and also see that one it was what it was some kids who accidentally hacked into a uh weapons yeah, like Department of Defense mainframe yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and they yeah, were controlling. Yeah. They thought it, they were playing a game against yeah. the computer. Yes. So, you know, that 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 kind of hints a little bit at, you know, at AI back in those days. And more modernly, more recently, you know, there's been all these other movies where now AI is, <laughs> was supposed to do all this magical, crazy things like Minority Report, which, interestingly enough, a lot of the things that, you know, were uh, shown in that movie as, ooh, they're actually, you know, uh, there are products of a lot of AI doing those things or machine learning doing that these days. Trying to predict who's going to be a criminal, that kind of thing. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Dr. Banda. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSUArtSci. And you can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes.